First, you must realize that you have no idea before you can know the idea. We scan across all the frequencies if we want to learn anything new. Let us begin. What has physics done for me lately? Furthermore, the equation E is equal we have now acquired a fateful power to alter and to destroy nature. That's like when you're in physics and you get a dream about saying, oh, this is a physics excursion. What is it all about? The whole of human history all falls in the dust of one stroke of the nail file. You can't really get to grips with evolution unless you realize uh, what an enormous amount of time. Our own planet is only a tiny part of the vast cosmic tapestry, a starry fabric of worlds yet untold. Good morning. You tuned in to what can only be described, you know it, the best radio station <laughs> on this blue dot we call Earth. The station is, of course, 4ZZZ. Bid on your conventional wireless radio by tuning into the classic frequency of 102.1 FM. Digital devices such as DAB or smart speaker. Listening via the Community Radio Plus app or streaming us live from our sensational website at 4ZZZ.org.au. And of course, you can always listen back to our show or any 4ZZZ show for that matter using the ingenious on-demand feature also found at that URL. We've also got a podcast now that Toby organises for us every week so you can listen back to our show. It cuts it down and it's about 50 minutes of listening pleasure. The show is, of course, No Idea Spelt With A K, your weekly dose of science. And joining me today are some of my favourite science communicators. Good morning, Jay. Good morning. Good morning, Gabe. Uh, That's good working. morning, Max. Welcome back. Thank you. For those who don't know... I accidentally this is... took Go two weeks off. You did take two weeks off. <laughs> well played. <laughs> yeah. And then I'm, I, I can't even talk that much today because, as you can hear, my voice is completely screwed from is the Matilda's match. Two yeah, wasn't that fantastic? Nice. That go. was very oh, good. Um, even yeah. I watched it. I'm not even a sports person. <laughs> right. Six and a half million people watched that match really? wow. on Channel 7. Yeah, Crazy. Yeah. That's more, it's nearly double, I think, or maybe it is double what watched the AFL grand final last year. Mm. Damn. That's pretty crazy, Wouldn't right? Would be hard, though. So. That's, that's three million people watched the AFL. Six and a half million people yeah. watched a. a Round of 16 matches. That's awesome. <laughs> it's only going to get better. Uh, France yeah, is next. So, so if my, my voice will probably just start going throughout the next two hours as you listen in. Cool. I've got some fragrance science this morning. Uh, I've also got a story on the Women's World Cup about this whole issue of why ACL injuries are oh, kind good. of yeah, yeah. being this yeah, thorn mm. in the side of women's football at the moment. Yeah. We get into the science behind what's going on there and the lack of science behind what's going on there as well. Mm. Uh, as a little later on in the show, Max, racing news is coming up. Space it news is. is coming up. There it was is. some weird stuff in the sky over Melbourne yesterday. Did you see that? Yeah, I saw that. Russian uh, booster coming down. Anyway. Yep. It's not where it was supposed to. <laughs> <laughs> Jay, you got anything, Jay? No, I'm, I'm here yeah. just to um, observe. contribute my um, observations. <laughs> and we'll have a story from V as well a little later on in the show. Max, what are we kicking off I'm with? I'm issuing the asterisks pretty early on this one. I think it's time for a bit of this. You might as well go early, Gabe. <laughs> well, I still can talk. Yeah, yeah, yeah well, you can still talk. <laughs> I have some 
fragrance science for you this morning, Max. Would you like to hear it? I would love to smell Uh, it. Some researchers at the University of California just took 43 men and women who were all between the ages of 60 and 85. So a small study. Yeah. Keep that in mind. But they gave them for this research... I don't know where you sign up for these sorts of research projects, but you know, like what the, all the ones I see are, you sign up and we'll, we'll like inject you with something weird, mm. or you have to go through like four hours of weird psychological testing or something like yeah, that. Yeah, right? yeah, and it doesn't yeah. seem this one. They gave them a fragrance diffuser mm-hmm. with seven different cartridges. Mm. Each of them had a different scented oil in each cartridge. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What was that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just and showing Jay. You, you're actually really up my weird science as well. So, oh. am I really? <laughs> <laughs> they gave them for this seven different cartridges of scented oils to plug into that diffuser. Mm. Uh, some of them were in a control group of people who had like fake scents that weren't actually scents, and then the rest of them were in the treatment group who had the seven different scents. And then for this research, all they had to do was activate the scent diffuser as they went to bed on a two-hour timer. So they just had to leave the diffuser running in the bedroom for the first two hours of their sleep. That's and right. that was it. Yep. That's what they had to do for yeah. six months. After six months of doing that, swapping out the fragrances each day and pumping it through the bedroom as they slept for two hours a night, uh, then they had to take a learning and memory test. The people who had been smelling the real fragrances each night performed 226% better on the test yeah. than the people who'd been given the fake fragrance. Yeah. All they did differently was... Sniff of different perfume every day of the week for two hours. As they slept, they didn't even do it when they were awake. The brain scans also showed the group who had been smelling real fragrances had better integrity in their left... Oh, Max, you've got it up on your thing. How do you say that word? Unsinate fasciculus pathway. If I've been smelling more perfumes, I would have yeah. gotten that perfectly. Uh, in other words, sniffing different smells for a few hours a night might enrich your cognitive performance, which is not unheard of. This isn't like a out of the blue finding. The researchers say smell or the olfactory sense is uh, the only one of our senses to be connected directly to the memory circuits in our brain. All the other senses have to go through a third party before they get to the memory circuits. Through the thalamus, Uh, yeah. That's the one. Yeah, yeah. And we know losing your sense of smell can help predict the development of nearly 70 neurological and psychiatric diseases, including dementias like Alzheimer's, Previous research has also found exposing people who have moderate dementia to up to 40 different odors a day can boost their memory and language skills. That's a lot of different smells to be huffing in a day. So with this new research, what they were trying to do is see if you can get at least some of these cognitive skills benefits without having to go sniffing the entire perfume all at Mecca every day. Yeah. You can just run a diffuser for a couple hours a night, switch it out, uh, switch out to a different scent each day, yep. and do that for two hours. And, and and they got these 226% improvements uh, on these tests they did. To be fair, they did other tests as well, which didn't show as great results. But sure. at least on this, I think it was like, yeah, you get read and read a list of words, and then you have to do a recall of yeah, all memory those words. Test, memory test, yeah, yeah. yeah. And they reckon, memory test. I reckon a product based on the, their study should be, uh, could be out soon. Oh, on the market true. Yeah. you could just have the different scents in there yeah, yeah. and it just runs for two hours a day and I just do it before the show I guess and then the show would run a lot better wouldn't it <laughs> maybe <laughs> maybe that's what we need <laughs> do you have a favourite 4 Z show oh it would be <laughs> you know what I would love to say that it was uh, Z guys don't say or, Z guys or, or, <laughs> don't or, say or it or alphabet <laughs> Or even Rhinestone Cowgirl mm-hmm, or Liminal mm-hmm. Space. But you know what? 
we're going to have to go with the uncancelable no idea. Oh, beautiful. Because I learned so much. That's such a great choice. I also mm. love tuning in every week. Um, I mean, it's had such a special place in everyone's hearts over the years. At the moment, I, I love the F1 updates <laughs> that <Yeah>. Max puts <laughs> in. I'm a big fan of those. <laughs> Um, they are, are uncancelable, Lucy. That's just the way it is. And it's a great it. show. <laughs> you know it. You tune into Four Triple Z, and the show is no idea with Max, Izzy, Jay, and Woo! Gabe. We're ready for part two of this. We got first Izzy. All right. Do you text whilst you walk? Yes. Yes? All the time. All the time? Constantly. Max? And I've been told my walking speed depends on what's happening on the phone. Oh, that's texting, interesting. Text, speed of text is the slowest walking speed I have. <laughs> <laughs> I don't do it. No, I'm too you don't old. do it? No. Nah. No, nah, that's fair <laughs> enough. Yeah. Well, from the University of New South Wales, mm-hmm. they, they put to the test... Uh, 50 University of New South Wales undergraduate students um, to see how they multitask. So texting whilst they walk when encountering an obstacle. Right. So in this case, a spill. This this, this is the kind of studies that I see the ads for, right? Yeah. Like the ones you have to do work for. Not the ones that we had before where you just have to put a centrifuge (laughs) in you. Yes. So they put to the test whether or not um, younger generations have mastered this multitasking right. skill. Um, so the um, senior author, Matthew A. Brody, who is a neuroscientist and engineer at the University of New South Wales, um, took some of his undergraduate students from his Mechanics of the Human Body course for this experiment. Mm-hmm. Um, they, Brody and the co-author, Yoshiro Yukubi, um, invented a tiled hazard walkway in the uh, laboratory, which halfway through had a tile that could be adjusted to slide out of place. So anyone who stepped on it would slip as if on a banana pill. Students wore a safety harness. Don't worry, the ethics are here. Um, (laughs) So as to prevent any slip from becoming a fall. And the sensors that collected that motion data. Um, they were asked to go along the walkway either without texting or while typing, the quick brown fox jumps over the lazy dog, right. which is a sentence, by the way, that has every single letter from the alphabet. Mm. Anyway, to st- better stimulate the uncertainty of real life, students were only told they may or may not slip. So there was a bit of uncertainty. Mm-hmm. This allowed researchers to study how texting pedestrians might anticipate and try to prevent a potential slip, such as leaning forward. Um, despite motion data showing that texting participants tried to be more cautious in response to a threat, this did not counteract their risk of falling. When participants went from leaning forward, such as over a phone, to slipping backwards, their motion sensors showed an increase in the range of their trunk angle. Researchers used this number to measure whether the texting condition was making students more likely to fall, and they found that the average trunk angle range during a fall significantly increased with the student was talking. Um, walking can also cause the text's accuracy to decrease. The highest texting accuracy occurred when participants were seated, but accuracy decreased even when walking. Participants were cautioned about a potential slip that did not occur. So you're more likely the accuracy of your text mm. whilst you're walking and anticipating, and not anticipating. Sorry. Um, so you're talking threat. about typos. Yeah. yeah. So typos. Yeah. Not or, meaning. Not meaning. No. Yeah, okay. So don't worry, Gabe. 
Um, <laughs> and of course, the lowest accuracy occurred in conditions where participants did slip, um, which I think is a given. Yeah. Um, they noted that younger people may be more likely to take risks, even if they are aware that texting and walking could increase their likelihood of falling. For that reason, the author suggests that edu- educational institutes such um, that signs would be less effective in reaching this population. In addition to education, researchers also suggest that phones should implement locking technology similar to what is being used when users are driving. Uh, this could detect walking activity and activate a screen lock to prevent texting during that time. First of all, could you imagine? Nah. This just makes me so upset because yeah. I, I, it. We're all just babies. <laughs> like we need, we need to have like yeah. our phones need to have things to get us not to text while walking because <laughs> we're children who can't. We, who <laughs> can't we need to have a waggling trusted. finger that's like mm, shouldn't do that. We need like. A, <laughs> <laughs> that's so embarrassing. Go to bed now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Bing, bing, bing. Go You've to reached bed your now. two hours. Uh, the reason why I picked this one though, this was off the um the Cymex, which is like the science database newsfeed, and they have a GIF that uh, Jay and I were watching earlier of just people falling over whilst texting. <laughs> yeah. I'll show you Max and I'll just... And, and walking, into this walking into things. Um, so, yeah. That's great. Look, I was guilty of it. I was listening to Zed as I was walking here a little yeah. bit late and I was texting whilst I was doing it. Yeah. And I was like, oh, this is perfect. It was a little bit of irony. Yesterday, <laughs> yesterday I was texting while walking at uni and um, I didn't fall but I did like walk into an area that was a dead end and then <laughs> look up and have to like awkwardly walk back out again I hate when that happens especially when people when people are watching one way turn yeah anyway um I I can like text without having to look at my phone though which is very helpful for for uh doing this Mm. but then it's a problem because like I I've become good at being able to have two conversations at once. <laughs> so someone is talking to me and I'm listening to them and, and I'm also texting, texting to someone else, which is not a skill that you want to develop because it makes you so much worse yeah. as a person. Like you just become a worse person. <laughs> well, what I used to read, I used to do the same thing. I'd, yeah. like, I'd walk and read yeah. and then I'd have yeah. like, this was in primary school where kids would like put their foot out. Yeah. Oh, and, like, yes. I, did, yeah. I basically did this experiment yeah. when I was like 10. <laughs> but I just, this is such a classroom experiment. Like lighting, I remember doing lighting tiny teddies on fire to see like how kilojoules are measured and stuff like that <laughs> yeah no that's great cool cool I got oh another subscriber it's oh, going oh, two yeah. subscribers nice. alright you tuned into 4 triple Z and the show is no idea your weekly dose of science with me Max Izzy J and Gabe and Izzy we've been getting some texts through we have um, we got a lovely text from Sass saying um, just some input on that whole idea of like I love the comment the nanny state idea yeah. of um, implementing a, like a phone locking system to prevent <laughs> us from texting <laughs> and walking yeah. um, and suggested maybe pop-ups that's what I have it's pretty it's a nice just something else not locking our phone um, and also I like shout out to whoever texted in saying um, best thing I've heard all morning to my 69 comment it is the funny number <laughs> <laughs> so look we just we, ca- we keep it simple we keep it's it right. stupid that's all what matters. Exactly. Lovely. Jay, what do you got for us? I have a story for you. Um, cool. You guys know I love birds. Yes. I'm a big fan yeah. of birds mm-hmm. in all shapes and sizes. I think they're fascinating little creatures. And one thing I love about city birds particularly, or birds mm. who live around uh, human populations, is mm. they are very intelligent and they often learn all kinds of fascinating ways to live with us, to co-opt like our structures and... Um, Oh, I'm just remembering. You guys know 
You guys have been to UQ, probably. Yeah. 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 Uh, you guys know, like, the sushi place there? It's, like, the best food on campus. <laughs> oh, yeah, with the curry. Yes. Yeah. I got a chicken curry the other day, and <laughs> I sat down, and I opened my chicken curry. Yeah, and it had a bird in there. No. Well, <laughs> nearly. <laughs> and I was like, mmm, can't wait to have this $12 chicken curry. And next thing I know, an ibis jumps on my table yeah. and just plunges its beak in there and just starts chucking my curry around. Then I had to go throw it out. It was very sad. Oh. Um, but I can't even be mad at them because, mm. you know what? Good for them. Yep. They've learned to live in the, in the city and that, that rules. Anyways, anti-bird spikes. You guys have seen them? Yes. Those like long mm. rows Boo. of... Yes. Yeah. I'm also against that anti-bird spikes. That hostile ar- architecture. Exactly. I prefer pigeons. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but... This story comes from a hospital patient in Antwerp, Belgium, who was looking out of their window and saw a bird nest that just looked like a giant sticky spider web Mm. of plastic and metal and anti-bird spikes. Yes. Mm -hmm. They're learning. (laughs) (laughs) And um, this, this patient, luckily knew of a biologist uh, at the Naturalist Biodiversity Centre in the Netherlands and sent a photo of this strange little web through to that scientist and they brought a team over to collect the nest and while they were writing up a report Mm. on it, other people sent in four different other examples of these nests that are popping up in Belgium Mm. um, and across Europe Mm. um, that are made out of sticks and also anti-bird spikes. Yeah, yeah. Um, so they found that the two kinds of birds who are making these nests are Eurasian magpies and carrion crows. So for the crows, um, it seems like the anti-bird spikes were just being used as part of the structure in the same way that they use sticks. But for the magpies, um, it was actually being used to ward off other birds That's from cool. their nests. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> these little magpies are... It's so cool. <laughs> These yeah. kinds of magpies are um, pretty small, so they create uh, actually like domed roofs over their nests to protect their eggs and hatchlings from other predators. And, and not sh- related at all to, to the Aussie magpies, just for the record. Yeah. They're, the Aussie magpies are named because they are black and white like the Eurasian ones. Completely different birds. Yeah. <laughs> really? Mm. Yeah. Oh they, they came to Australia and were like, that looks like the ones at home. <laughs> That's right. Jesus. I don't feel fine with black swan. Okay. <laughs> so um, often the magpies adorn their roofs with thorny branches for extra protection. But in large cities, this kind of spiny vegetation is harder to come by. So they've been innovating with materials they have available like nails, screws and knitting needles. And now anti-bird spikes. Um I mean, it's fascinating because it's just like another example of the way that like as we screw up the environment, animals are screwing up right back at us. (laughs) Adapt, overcome, baby. (laughs) Exactly. I mean, obviously, it's like incredibly sad at the same time. Like birds should be able to use sticks for stuff. But I think it's very cool that they were like, Mm. oh, we hate these things. We're going to start using them to build our nests and protect our young from it. So... It's pretty cool. So hopefully um, they're going to continue studying and trying to see, uh, obviously, whether or not these anti-bird spikes are doing a better job uh, than the normal stick defense for these magpies. Sweet. There you go. They are different birds. (laughs) 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 Well, Izzy has that little revelation 
got a story for us from our friendly neighborhood marine scientist who'll be on air with us next week. I Beautiful. Think. Great. And this week we have a story from her from uh, a little while ago that I thought was worth replaying, Max, because I think about this now sometimes when I'm snorkeling down down, down at the beach. There was this story that came out that was basically these researchers. It, it was one of these moments where some researchers saw something weird and then realized that a lot of other researchers had been seeing the same thing. They'd seen large marine animals like turtles and dolphins and things swimming in very inefficient circles. And Peter has the story on what happened next. Okay, kids, now we can get into the fun stuff, the salty stuff, the marine science. So over the past couple of years, technological advancements have made it possible for researchers to track the movements of marine creatures in far greater detail. And we've even talked about it before in the show, but a recent study has highlighted that some of these large ocean creatures, like sharks, penguins, turtles, and marine mammals, all do something super weird. They swim in circles. The research showed that a wide variety of megafauna show a similar circling behavior, where they circulated consecutively at a relatively constant speed more than twice. So think like a spiral. The researchers first observed the behavior in green sea turtles when they were researching their infamous homing abilities. They were absolutely perplexed and doubted whether what they were seeing was accurate given the mechanical and repetitive nature to the circling. Once confirmed, the lead researcher then spread news of the finding to other colleagues who used the same form of data logging over a large range of marine animals. And then the results came flooding in. Heaps of animals doing the exact same thing swimming in circles and it doesn't really make sense because the most efficient way to swim is pretty much in a straight line and much like walking going in circles is pretty counterproductive so the researchers have concluded that there must be some good reason for the animals to circle in this way there are a couple of theories the behavior sometimes occurs while foraging so it may have something to do with finding food 272 instances of circling were found from tiger sharks in the feeding areas of Hawaii, for example. However, fur seals were primarily seen to circle during the day, even though they forage primarily at night. Even tiger sharks were using the circling move at times that had nothing to do with eating. So the other theory is that it has to do with navigation. As we've discussed here on the show before, turtles have this crazy sense of direction that has puzzled scientists for years but we think it has something to do with magnetic fields. And in the initial study that was looking at these incredible homing abilities, the turtles were seen to circle at key moments in navigation just before their final approach to the goal. And for the cherry on the Sunday, submarines actually circle during geomagnetic observations. So it is possible that the circling helps the animals detect the magnetic fields they need to navigate. But it could also be both. The behaviors could hold multiple uses. So far, this has really only been seen in marine creatures, but if you're really interested, try walking in circles for a few hours in the street and see what happens. Record your results, write it down, then it's science. The Pelican and Seabird Rescue specializes in rescuing injured native birds that can still fly. Sadly, our shorebirds often get entangled in many things, like fishing tackle, weed matting, disposable masks, six-pack plastic rings, and even socks. If you see an injured bird that can still fly, please help them by finding Pelican and Seabird Rescue's number on Facebook or calling them 0404 118 301 or the RSPCA at 1300 Animal. Remember, by picking up any circular object or thread and cutting it into pieces before putting it in the bin, you can save an animal. Just imagine the satisfaction you'll get knowing your action will save a life. 4ZZZ cares about our community. Okay, 
Okay, it's time for the best part of the show. Loosely defined as science, yeah, you already know. Everybody listens to four triple Z just to hear us talking about what butters just did. Subscriptions just keep rolling like the tires on a car. But something tells me that our science careers won't go far. But unlike an engine, I will keep you in suspension. We're all here to hear him talk, so let's give him attention. You're not ready for when he starts rapping. Gonna hand that mic to Max, and I'm not talking Van Staffen. It's lights out, and away we go. If I say, rap. Is there what a, you got? if I say the initials S, V, and G together, who am I talking about, Gay? Shane Van Gisbergen, Matt. That's it. Former supercar driver here and now Indy car driver. Well, over in NASCAR the driver. States of yeah. America. Sorry. Oh, so close. I know. It looks so similar, too. He'll once again join a select group of international drivers. They're going to be driving NASCAR, and it'll be on the Indy, Indianapolis road circuit later this month. He'll be joined by fellow supercar driver Brody Kostecki, who is making his NASCAR Cup Series debut in driving car number 33. There'll also be a former Japanese Formula One driver called Kumu Kobayashi, who will be piloting the number 67. And Jensen Button, who's a F1 champion. He's a 2009 F1 champion. He'll be driving the number 15. SVG will, of course, be driving the number 91, which he famously won on the streets of Chicago on debut. This will be the second drive for SVG or Shane Van Gisburn. He did a nice, setting the bar low, soft launch (laughs) in the first NASCAR (laughs) drive. Look at me. Winning the race Mm. completely. Uh, Yeah, fresh is on now, isn't it? It is. MotoGP happened in the UK over the weekend. Bit of wet weather. Aussie Jack Miller, he managed to qualify second. And come race day, it was a dry race to start off with, he assumed the lead on the first lap game. Mm -hmm. What do you reckon happened after that, though? He used all his tyres up, all (laughs) fell off, and dropped down about 10 places. He did. He fell back to 14th for a while. And then he managed to... um, when you when the rain started to fall, some of the riders came in to swap their bikes over. You don't swap the tires over. You just swap your bike. When the bike will have wet weather tires on it. But Miller stayed out, and in true Miller special style, he finished in eighth. So not too bad. Alpine, so, so, so what he does every <laughs> single race. It's I don't know. Oh uh, uh, yeah, and, and if you haven't ever watched a MotoGP pit stop before yeah. uh, it's great just go watch one on youtube just watch for the sake <laughs> of it. because you're expecting like you know formula one you see everyone sees the clips right they race in they smash the wheels on and then they're off again yeah, yeah. and in the the motor gp it's literally just they drive in and it's how quick they can jump from one bike <laughs> to another bike and then ride off again because the new right. bike has the wheels on it that's right anyway f1 team alpine they're owned by renault they're under a bit of pressure to perform and during the Belgian Grand Prix weekend, they uh, got rid of three people from their team. They got rid of the team principal, Otmar. He had to mm. leave. Uh, sporting director, Alan Permain, he was shown the door. And chief technical officer, Pat Fry, he sort of had a bit of a golden parachute. He went over to uh, Williams. Well, I guess you wouldn't call that a golden parachute. But he, he, he switched teams to Williams. Bruno Famon is now the interim uh, team principal. And he says Renault is in no hurry to make new appointments to the management team. So I'm thinking it was a good choice by Oscar not to go with the Alpine team, <laughs> wasn't it? Then went to McLaren instead. 
And Marco, who runs, he, he advises the um, Red Bull team, Helmut Marco, he's come out and said uh, Alpine should just sell, sell their team to uh, Andretti, and that would solve the Andretti <laughs> problem. Such a, such a great answer. <laughs> but yeah, Oscar Piastri, the Aussie, started in F1 this year, was supposed to be with, technically, well, maybe was supposed to be with Alpine, yeah. uh, who was just Renault, and they announced it, and then he famously tweeted that he was not joining that team yeah, uh, and they had the contracts wrong and he'd signed for McLaren where he's doing pretty well. They did. IndyCar happened on the weekend as well in Nashville and it was called the Big Music, no, sorry, the Big Machine Music City Grand Prix and it was on a temporary street circuit that takes races by Nissan Stadium, home of the NFL Tennessee Titans and over the Korean War Veterans Memorial Bridge in downtown Nashville. It's the first motorsport circuit of its kind to cross a major body of water. And do you know what that river is called? No. Okay. No. <laughs> how's, how's your no US tickets. geography going, right? The Cumberland. Okay. Cumberland River. Cool. And finally, the Valtteri Bottas and Roman Grosjean report. Oh, Valtteri, he's been up to... <laughs> He's doing lots of nude shots again, but I'm not going <laughs> to talk about that. <laughs> nah, let's talk about that. Him and that's Valtteri and his Aussie partner slash business partner slash, I don't know, girlfriend Tiffany have been out and about showing off their brand of gin. It's called Oath to anyone and everyone in Finland. Meanwhile, IndyCar driver Roman Grosjean qualified six for the big machine music city indie grand prix on the weekend during the race the phoenix managed to do get to p2 but after some laps he only finished well overall he only finished six so started in sixth finished in sixth so i'm thinking job well done anything else go that's it, Max. We're going to talk about AC the, get into why there's an ACL epidemic hitting women's football at the moment in a few minutes. You tune into Four Triple Z, and the show is no idea. With me, Max, Izzy, Jay, and Gabe. What's up? And V has sent in something for us, Gabe. V has sent in something for us. We're going to get into that ACL injury whole debate in uh, after this. But yes. um, V has a story for us on butterflies, Max. And uh, some weird new science has come out about their caterpillars. Hey guys, it's V again, just checking in from cyberspace. Today I'm bringing you a story on insects, or to be more precise, butterflies from the Heliconius genus. This study was published just two days ago by researchers from the University of Bristol in the journal Current Biology. What they did was examine whether Heliconius butterflies can learn spatial information at large scales. Now, we've already done some studies on insects and spatial learning. The thing is, most of these studies focus on species of ants and bees, which are very communal, colony-based species, so to speak. The study provides the first direct evidence of spatial learning in butterflies or moths, and suggests that complex learning skills, such as the use of spatial information, may be more common in insects than we previously thought. Now, the reason this team decided to use Heliconius butterflies for this study is that it's a very special genus of butterfly. To begin with, Adult Heliconius butterflies feed on pollen rather than nectar. They're one of the only genuses of butterfly that do so, and it's thought that they do this to acquire essential amino acids. Other studies have found that butterflies that don't feed on pollen as adults 
and therefore don't get access to all those amino acids later in life, do the majority of their development as caterpillars when they're eating leaves or <laughs> whatever caterpillars eat. In contrast, Heliconius butterflies get the advantage of having continued development throughout their adult lifespans. This makes Heliconius a key genus for butterfly studies, since their diet has been found to change their life history so much. But back to special learning. The researchers in the study looked at pollen foraging behaviour. They noticed that wild Heliconius butterflies would follow specific foraging routes day after day, returning to the same food sources to feed more efficiently. The team tested Heliconius foraging routes on three different scales, building mazes that ranged from 1 meter to 3 meter to 60 meters wide. And what they found was that Heliconius butterflies could memorize spatial locations of food sources on multiple scales. I'll leave you with this delightful quote from Dr. Montgomery, the study's senior author. It's fascinating to learn about the complex behaviors that even familiar animals like butterflies express as part of their natural ecologies. These species are extracting and processing diverse information from the environment and using them to form complex tasks, all with brains a couple of millimetres wide. What cool was that? It's fucking bad. <laughs> <laughs> you but tuned into 4 triple Z, and the show is no idea. With me, Max, Izzy with the potty mouth. Oi! <laughs> Jay That's and me. Gabe. And Gabe, you're going to talk about some soccer-related injuries or football-related injuries. I'm going to talk about some football-related injuries. That's right. Women's World Cup is on. Like, I think everyone knows uh, and, like, you can hear in my voice because I've been screaming at a couple <laughs> of matches. So we'll see how far through this story we get before I run out of voice. Um, but one of the things that I hope stays remembered... Um, uh, like, it's, it's something that we remember about this World Cup mm. is the number of phenomenal players who aren't on the field because mm. and not even uh, substitutes on the bench because they have ACL injuries. There are at least 25 players who might have been chosen for the inter their international sides who are out with ACL injuries, including the English captain, Leah Willi Williams Williamson, mm. and Netherlands, uh, Vivian Miedema. Um, and we also have the recovering Kaya Simon, who probably would have played some minutes if she wasn't recovering from an ACL that she injured last year. Mm. Uh, she hasn't played a minute in the tournament. She hasn't played since the injury. Just, just so it, we just to let the view, uh, viewers, the listeners know what an ACL injury is. I just looked it up. It's, it's, it's one of the, the strong bands of tissue that help connect your thigh bone to your shin bone. Oof. And that gets torn. Yeah. 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 And it plays a big role in the um, knee joint functioning mm. and, and that sort of thing. And, and it typically happens with. In, in soccer, at least, it typically happens with movements that involve pivoting, landing, any sort of strain through that knee, thigh sort of thing pulls the ACL or can injure the ACL. Uh, it, it, quite crucially, it doesn't often happen during contact. It can happen during contact, but it, it usually is when you're rapidly decelerating, rapidly accelerating, landing on something or twisting on your knees. Um, so that's why it's often like defenders and midfielders doing defensive work who get ACL injuries. It happens off the ball. Uh, or, or rather not through contact, like a lot mm -hmm. of other major injuries can happen. Uh, and also why you hear a lot of them happen during training. Um, and so they just, all of a sudden the player is not there um, in the next match. So yeah, it's it's something that's been hitting, I mean, it hits athletes with terrible consequences in all sorts of sports across all sorts of, uh, across the men's and women's uh, leagues. But female athletes, it's 
been uh, recorded that female athletes are between two to eight times more likely to tear their ACLs than male athletes are. And one study estimated that that meant each individual female athlete has about a one in 20 chance of an ACL injury every year. So imagine carrying a squad into a, you know, a season, a women's football team in, mm. you're going to have more than 20 players in there. You're expecting at least one, probably more ACL injuries to happen. Yeah. And, and these are, these are, uh, you know, about a year recovery, these ACL injuries. Mm. Uh, those people are also 20 women athletes. Um, they're also 25% less likely to return to sport within five years of the injury than ma uh, male athletes are, uh, which means ACL tears are career ending for 30% of female athletes who get them and 15% of those who go on to return get a retear anyway, um, which I think is what happened to Kai Simon. I think the one that happened last year was a, a retear. Mm. Uh, in case that wasn't horrible enough, people who tear an ACL are six times more likely to develop an early onset painful painful joint disease called osteoarthritis. That's because of what happens when you tear an ACL, Max, like you said, mm. um, the way it, it, it messes with that connective tissue. Uh, and yeah, it's been happening a lot in women's football, which is, um, I mean, I guess the benefit of the silver lining of this is that the World Cup has shone a light on it and that, you know, it's given us opportunities to talk about it. Uh, and the question then is why it's happened. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, we don't know no. a lot. Yeah. We don't, and this is part of the problem. What we do know is some stuff that it's not to do with. It doesn't seem to be a fatigue-related thing. Um, it doesn't have a correlation with the sort of length of a season. Uh, you know, like you don't get them more during the end of the season and the start of the season. It doesn't seem to be fatigue-related. Um, and it's also not due to the lack of a pill. A few years ago, some headlines came out claiming the use of the pill dropped the risk of ACL injuries. It's not true. There was a massive literature review of 5 million females published last year that found no such link. So that, that got debunked pretty quickly. Uh, but it's still something that's flying around as one of the explanations. Uh, beyond these things, the short answer is we don't know why it's happening. But there are a lot of ideas. I'm going to run through the anatomical potential things. These are... These are uh, not things that all have great evidence behind them, but all uh, things that I found in, in scientific circles, like rec uh, 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 put forward by, by people who know what they're talking about, not just random speculation. Mm. Um, com when compared to males, people born female tend to have wider pelvises relative to the length of their leg, which means it's a bit more of an angle at the knee, which could potentially contribute to the ACL stuff happening, injuries. ACL in, female, in females uh, also has a narrower space to pass through as it attaches to the thigh bone and the ACL itself is often smaller. Knee ligaments are looser, which can reduce the sense of movement and position in these joints. There's some evidence linking certain types of menstrual cycles with increased ACL injury risk, uh, also certain times of menstrual cycles with increased ACL injury risk. Hamstring, ha hamstring activation may be slightly delayed, which could increase the strain on the ACL when landing and reduced core and hip muscles could play a part as the way women tend to land on their knees has been linked to potential ACL injuries. But it's not just uh, all about genetics and biology because some of these anatomical explanations haven't held up in recent analyses. Mm. And it's also almost impossible to separate the genetic component there with the differences between how female and male athletes are, uh, are trained and nurtured and cared for in a medical sense from an early age. So you can't actually, a lot of this stuff, we, it's hard to tell, you know, is the reduced strength that you're seeing uh, on average something that's caused through genetic, just genetic causes, or if it's something that's also contributed to because there simply isn't the support structures at an early age for these ath female athletes as they're coming through these systems. There's some researchers that wrote up a really good article in the conversation. I'm going to quote a bit of it here, yep. which says the environments in which female athletes learn and play sport also contribute to the risk. The gender stereotypes that permeate sport often undervalue females' athletic abilities 
which can lead to fewer and inferior opportunities and resources. For example, at the 2021 NCAA March Madness in the US, male athletes had access to a full gym, while female athletes were provided a few light dumbbells and yoga mats. It's a pretty famous example that made a lot of headlines at the time, and rightfully so. <laughs> they go on to say girls and women with muscular and bulky body types are seen by some as unattractive, which can also impact access and enthusiasm for weight training. This gender stereotyping is a problem because weight training important for preventing ACL tears. To show how important that is, there were two studies that came out in 2018. One found that specific exercises could reduce ACL injuries in female athletes by 50%. And another study in the same year found specific warm-up activities and muscle strengthening can reduce ACL injuries in women's football specifically mm. by 45%. So that's like, you know, you're cutting these injuries in half with good training, which suggests that this, a lot of this is could be down to just a lack of the right activities and and really specific training uh, that's also tailored towards female athletes. A lot, I, I think there's, it's probably safe to say there's been a lot of just copy and paste male training regimes across in ways that might not work uh, and True, that might yeah. contribute to um, mm. or just not support the reduced injuries uh, that you're seeing with these other specific stuff they've been trialing in these studies. Uh, there's those authors who wrote that bit that I've quoted before. They also point the finger at how women's football is structured and supported. The women's game has gone through a rapid professionalization in the past few years, which has hastily brought on a higher physical load and risk of injury. Um, and it's brought on that in people who, who, like a lot of the people who currently play for the Aussie team, there's clips all over the internet at the moment of them saying they never had these role models growing up. And you can imagine that growing up through the systems they would have gone through to get to where they are, there would have been just a lot less focused training on things like preventing injuries, which is what they've shown is the best way of, of dealing with ACL injuries is to try and do what you can beforehand to prevent it. Uh, and, and at the same time, you know, women's club seasons tend to be shorter than the men's club seasons, which means the matches happen closer together at the same time. The facilities and the coaching and the medical staff to support that increased physicality and the game frequency has probably dragged behind a bit. Uh, and so after all that, they do have some fixes. I had a look around and got some from physiotherapists and, and all sorts and, and got some, some of the recommendations of what can be done to fix this. A lot is just down to putting the money and the skilled people behind coaching, training and medical parts of women's football all the way down into the youth leagues. So that, that supports there from the ground up, paying athletes enough to, uh, and giving them the semi-professional leagues and professional leagues to learn and train is probably a pretty smart idea too. Uh, and in the end, the fact that we don't have good answers on why this is happening says a lot about how female athletes are treated. It's probably a lot of the mm. same underlying causes that have led to this lack of research <coughs> in female women's uh, in women's football specifically. Um, uh, that has also probably contributed to increased ACL injuries in women's football. And hopefully, a successful World Cup can re be remembered not just for you know the players that aren't on the field, but also as a winning. bit of a yeah. turning point for mm. when this. Um, <laughs> Yeah, Australia win is a bit of a turning point where focus gets put on on actually understanding this stuff and and developing these these um, preventative ways of of uh, cracking down on the ACL injuries. If you do have a young kid who's getting into football, I will just say you can have a look at Football Australia's Form Plus website for some prevention programs you can roll out now. Um, apparently, there's not much difference in the effectiveness of these programs if they're rolled out by medical professionals or just good coaches. So, um, Perform Plus is there if it. That's really interesting. Yeah, mm. I know that ACLs, especially for f female sports, that's career ending. Yeah, that yeah. is like as soon as you get that diagnosis, you are done. That's and it. it's not just on like a career front as well. It's also on like physical health because mm. it's very easy to re tear that. And 
as I'm more of an NRL gal, but like the Brisbane Broncos <laughs> women's team, it's insane. They yeah. work part-time jobs yeah. because they yep. can't afford to go full-time mm. um, under their payment. And if you've seen those women, weight training they are very familiar with. Mm. And it is for that re- measure to mm. prevent, yeah. obviously, injury. Yeah, no, it's always interesting how much, as Australians, we consume a lot of sport, but there's not a lot of science behind it as well. Mm. There, well, there's not a lot of research into the science behind it. There's a heck of a lot of a science um, I know recently they're talking about the um, degenerate um, brain disease that can occur when you get like concussions, rigorous concussions. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, it's only something that can be diagnosed post-mortem. I think we've only recently had um, a footy player, a, a veteran footy player get mm. diagnosed with it because it's typically something that's diagnosed post-mortem when they kind of look at the brain scans and go, oh crap, like he's... Mm. There's not a lot Took of a brain beating. tissue left. Yeah. yeah. So I think it's really interesting. And thank you for bringing that up, Gabe, because yeah. it's definitely a conversation that we do need to have a chat about. Mm. And our marketing person, Ez, who does transmission mm. on a Tuesday, he said, everything Gabe is saying is exactly my experience as a former player. Yeah. So there you go. Well done, Gabe. Concur. Yeah. And, and I think you'd find a lot of the uh, players currently in the World Cup when they were going through would have had that same part-time job thing going on for, for a yeah, lot of them it would have, wouldn't have been the money in it to to do it as a full-time thing and do the training and all that mm. and get all the medical staff that you need as support to prevent these sorts of injuries yeah it's insane the show is no idea you tune into four a triple a Z. you got me max we got jay we got gabe oh. izzy setting up for eco radio next door in studio one because it's quarter to the hour, it means only one thing. No idea, space news. Oh, Izzy, I wanted you in the room with me. Anyway, it's right. <laughs> <laughs> it's Gillian Anderson's birthday today. I feel slightly left out, Jay. <laughs> <laughs> it's just Izzy was telling me she's watching the uh, X-Files ah. from start to finish. Yeah, but it gets a bit frustrating watching X-Files because they never seem to solve anything, do they? <laughs> anyway... WA, so just leading on from that, the WA cold case that Gabe brought up last time, two weeks ago, the mysterious wreckage that washed up on WA's coast mm, yes. has I been this identified. Really cool. Oh! <laughs> yes. <gasps> the Australian Space Agency tweeted that the object, or do you call it exited now? I guess, I don't mm. know. No, that, just tweeted, <laughs> just tweeted. <laughs> that the object located on the beach near Durian Bay in Western Australia is most likely debris from an expendable third stage polar satellite launch vehicle or PSLV. And these rockets are operated by the Indian Space Research Organisation or ISRO, which is now working with the Australian Space Agency to determine what will happen next with the debris. The PSLV launch occurred earlier this year on the 29th of May. So, right, I reckon, so the internet got it right in, in seconds. In, in seconds. Okay, Astroscale. In humanity's fight against dead orbiting satellites. <laughs> I wrote that. <laughs> Thank you, Max. Thanks for letting us know. Astroscale is hoping satellite manufacturers will adopt their hardware. Astroscale's circular docking plate, now in mass production, is a little larger than a compact disc at 15 centimetres in diameter and weighs less than half a kilo and is compatible with magnetic and mechanical capture methods. 
AstroScale demonstrated how a servicer could latch onto an earlier version of the docking plate back in 2021 during a magnetic capture and release test on a satellite. So hopefully this will be used as an end-of-life service um, solution, let's say. They managed to raise $376 million. So hopefully, in, and they're hoping that in-orbit servicing will become routine within by the end of the decade. Mm. Now, if I said SF-289... Yeah. I know Gabe's reading the article anyway, but <laughs> <laughs> it's an asteroid. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was discovered by an algorithm, so a bit of AI, and the software is called HelioLink 3D. And it's been designed to detect near-Earth asteroids. It has now identified its first potentially hazardous asteroid, the roughly 200-metre-wide asteroid designated SF-289, was discovered during a beta test of the algorithm with the Atlas survey in Hawaii. Finding SF-289, which at this point poses no risk to Earth, confirmed that the next generation software can identify near-Earth asteroids with fewer and more dispersed observations. SF-289 is classified as an Apollo-type NEO, which is a near-Earth orbit, with its closest approach estimated to be around 225,000 kilometres, which means it will pass between the Moon and Earth. And for those playing at home, the Moon sits about 380,000 kilometres out. 380,000 kilometres out. 380. A question, Max. Yes. Um, They've they've said in the same thing Mm -hmm. that their their new algorithm has detected a potentially hazardous asteroid, Mm. but that it is no risk. (laughs) Yeah. It's a bit of it, yeah. It's good writing, isn't it? Oh, well. Starlab. All right, we'll just skip over the <laughs> yeah, potentially hazardous massive <laughs> asteroid that's hurtling. It might hit us one day, but not not within the le- next hundred years. Let's say that. Yeah, right. Starlab. <laughs> <laughs> Is that your time frame? <laughs> <laughs> I'm out. Peace out. I'm, I'm out of here. The uh, Voyager Space is joining forces with Airbus on a joint venture for the development of Starlab, which is going to be a commercial space station in low Earth orbit. The company has announced the creation of the joint venture, which is also called Starlab, that will be responsible for the development and operation of the station. The joint venture builds upon an agreement announced back in January where Voyager selected Airbus to provide technical expertise for a proposed station. And I did play the Eagles today. Did you enjoy me playing the Eagles? Well, there's another um, acronym for Eagles used in space. It stands for Estimating Ages from lithium equivalent widths. Eagles. What? I know. Go on. So Estimi- no. Estimating ages. A- from. From. So lithium. Yeah. E-A-G. Yep. <laughs> lithium. <laughs> equivalent. Equivalent. Widths. Uh-huh. <laughs> so. <laughs> it nearly works. So. <laughs> <laughs> what? Yeah, I'll tell you what Eagles oh, hang on, does. No, hang on, hang on, hang on. Uh, They've taken the G from ages, <laughs> estimating ages, E-A-G, uh, and then we have to get L-E-S, from yeah. lithium Width, equivalent plural. widths. <laughs> Eagles. Done. <laughs> no. No. Hey, Max, we're not done. We're not done here. <laughs> what? <laughs> anyway, we're just going to go with this one. 
Eagles uses the lithium. Did you make this up? <laughs> no, I did not make okay, this okay, up. Okay, okay. Eagles uses the lithium abundance of stars to determine their age. Okay. Previously, this work was done by manually fitting data into graphs with the surveys producing even more data. So an AI version of Eagles has now been developed to handle the data. Eagles still works, though. E-A-L-E-W <laughs> is still like a pronounceable acronym. Eagle. <laughs> they just call it Eagles? I don't trust it. I don't... How are we meant to trust these scientists? <laughs> Space is big out there. However, the Eagles neural network does have one significant limitation. It can only accurately measure the ages of stars up to about 6 billion years old, which is the age of the oldest uh, cluster the algorithm was trained on. So there you go. Okay. So anything older than 6 billion years, just have to call it 6 billion years, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> That's what Eagles is going to say anyway. And that is it for the space news, unless you've got something to go. No, just that there's a, a there was something flying over Melbourne for a minute last night. Oh, it turned out to be a Russian rocket, rocket that uh, that yeah. was supposed to enter not over Melbourne but over uh, off the ocean from Southeast Tassie. Mm. Um, so I don't know. Are there repercussions? No, if you miss no, with your space jump. No, there's no repercussions. Apparently, it's just a it's just a sort of a handshake agreement that <laughs> we we won't fly over densely populated areas with our rocket debris. So, yeah, they're trying to land it on the ocean if they can. So, probably take out some marine life and stuff. But, you know. It doesn't hit, though, does it? It burns up before it hits the ground. Still, there'll be some fragments hitting the ground still. It won't totally burn up. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. In Melbourne, there's a non-zero chance. There's a potentially hazardous, according to that algorithm, risk of being hit by a small (laughs) chunk of Russian rockets. (laughs) Okay, I've got a question for you. Yes. The latest expedition team on the ISS, the International Space Station, what number expedition do you reckon it is? 30. Oh, I thought you gave for your favourite number. 69. It is. It is? It is. Woo! I'm playing our outro music, so Gabe, you have to sign us out. (laughs) (laughs) That means, means, Gabe, you have to sign us out within about 30 seconds. (laughs) And Jay and Izzy and V and Peter for stories this week. Thank you for tuning in. You can find the recording of this week's show on 4 Look for no idea. That's no with a K. Um, I'm going to throw up all the music and the stories we talked about as well, um, probably after I recover my voice a little bit, uh, so you can find what we've played and what we've talked about on the show. We'll be here next week, 10 a.m. to 12, to do Radiothon. Woo-hoo! The biggest week on 4 yeah, calendar I next week. I love Radiothon. I'm so excited. I'm so excited. We got to almost 40 subscribers last year, yeah, so true. like... Mm-hmm. Be we're, ready. We're get your wallets out. We <laughs> <laughs> had another song during that yeah, no, music break. For it's going to so, be an unhinged yeah. hour, and we better meet that target again. Two hours. Two hours. It feels like an hour because we have so much fun. And we had Kate from the library come in and talk about surfing, women's surfing. <gasps> yeah, was it was great. a really fascinating chat, great. and I'm going to um, cover it next week because cool, cool. I think it's like worth <laughs> <laughs> worth the whole. Worth the whole thing. Worth the whole yeah. hour. Cool, cool. <laughs> the whole hour. Ready for a bit of chaos next week, guys. Yeah. Thank you. We've got to sign out. Yeah. We'll see you next week for Radiothon. I'm a goddamn marvel of modern science. science.